Amen, amen. Go ahead and take a seat, grab a Bible, and meet me over in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. When you get there, we're going to read it together. Starting in verse 1, we're going to go 1 through 10 today. Here's what it says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to give alms to those entering the temple. So Peter and John, about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And as he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood up and he began to walk and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized, as, recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. Take a breath. When was the last time you thought about breathing? When was the last time you thought about the breath that's in your lungs? You don't, because it happens naturally, and yet... Breathing is one of the greatest miracles on earth. The only time you ever think about breathing is if you're choking or you're drowning or you're climbing up a mountain. And yet, if I take a second and explain to you just how amazing breathing is, it would change everything. See, the average person inhales and exhales every four seconds, and that adds up to 21,600 breaths every day. Over the course of your life, most of us will breathe 607,468,468,400 breaths, but who's counting? With every breath that you inhale and you exhale, they say that it contains about 12.6 sectillion molecules. The more molecules in your breath, there's more than the sands of the seashore on the entire earth combined. The surface of your lungs, they say, with every nook and cranny is the same size as a tennis court, and with all of your airways, from your trachea to your bronchial tubes, measures about 1,500 miles. One scholar says that all the world's roads and all of its canals and all of its airports in the human history haven't handled as much traffic as your lungs do every single second. As you exhale, it might seem like your air just vanishes into the world, into thin air, and yet those molecules still exist. Under normal conditions, they say that every time you exhale, it catches a prevailing wind and circles the globe at the same latitude in about two weeks. Within two months, every breath will cover the northern hemisphere, and within a year or two, the entire globe. Good thing we're not talking about this three years ago during COVID. <laughs> In the book, Caesar's Last Breath, the author talks about respiration, and he reframes it. Listen to what he says. He says, with every breath, you literally inhale history. He said the idol of Mar in 44 BC, where Julius Caesar was stabbed on the Senate floor, that might think, you might think that's in history, but that story of his last breath is still unfolding today. In fact, you're probably inhaling some of it right now. 
of those sectillions of molecules entering and leaving your lungs at this very moment, some of them might bear the traces of Cleopatra's perfume. So take a breath. It's crazy to think that something as simple as breathing, something that your body does naturally, is such a miracle. We sung about it. It's your breath in our lungs. Something so complicated, your body does naturally. You see, miracles, miracles happen every single day if you'll just take the time to look for them. The problem is, as G.K. Chesterton, the great philosopher, said, is everything's a miracle and you've just become too grown up for them. You don't realize that the grass being green and the sky being blue is a miracle of the design of God. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, God created both of them, and it's a miracle that it happens. Life happens, and it's miraculous. Every breath you have is a miracle. Maybe you've only thought about miracles in the sense of like these big picture things, like God healing the blind or giving, uh, giving the paralyzed man the ability to walk or God miraculously healing cancer. And listen, all of those things are miracles, and yet there's so much more going on than that. It's not that, they, not that miracles only have to be these big precedented things. It's not that miracles have to suspend the supernatural. It's that miracles are supposed to be natural. Don't, don't you get that? This is what you're going to see today is the very first miracle breaking into the church. And here's the big idea is as the church age is beginning, God wants you to see that the supernatural is actually supposed to be natural. That sin has made the, the supernatural become unnatural. And the world that you live in today is not the natural world. It's the unnatural world. And one day God is going to make all those things that seem supernatural be what you just experience every day. So if you're here today, you need to be reminded that every breath in your lung is a gift from God. I want you to hear me say, as you take that breath, that's a gift that's not guaranteed to you. Maybe, maybe today you need to be reminded that, that everything that God gives you is a good gift. And every single miracle points to something greater. It points to the miracle maker. It points to the fact that God wants to give you something good. And if you need to hear that today, what you're going to find is that God has something good for you. So check this out, verse 1. Now, Peter and John, it says, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. Back in Jewish days, 2,000 years ago, they would measure time by prayers. So you had, the, you had the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, which would have been the three regular times that Jewish people would go to the temple to pray. Those times had significant times in history. If you think about it, Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Darkness came over the land at the sixth hour. He died at the ninth hour. When did Daniel go to the temple to pray? Three times a day. He prayed regularly. Many, many, many important things happened at this. And here's what I think you need to get. Is although the ninth hour was the regular time of prayer, the most pious, varsity level Christian, our Jews at that time, would have gone three times a day like Daniel. What does that tell you? Well, these, these Jews who were going to the temple three times a day, these pious, varsity-level Jews had passed by this paralyzed man at least three times a day. Details. There's so many details here. Y'all, I don't want you to miss the warning. It's easy for us to get so caught up in our religious activity that we can miss what God is doing right in front of us. That sometimes God puts the thing right in front of you, and yet you're on your way to go to what you think you're supposed to be doing. And listen to me, you can miss it if you get caught up in the religious activities of the day and you miss the gospel. 
This is so important for us. God cares just as much about the type of person that you are as he does about the religious activities that you do. So let me just slow down really quickly. I want to get practical. I want to give you three ways that you cannot miss the things that are right in front of you. All right? In our world, matter of fact, I was reading a Washington, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article today talking about why many people are leaving the church. I just listened to a podcast that said over the last 30 years, it's estimated that 44 million Christians are no longer going to church. And this, this Wall Street Journal article said that it doesn't fit into our American individualism anymore. We're too busy for church. So here it is. Here's number one. Slow down. Slow down. Too many of us don't have any margin in our day. We go from one meeting to the next all the time. We, matter of fact, we stack our meetings up so much that we're always five minutes late to the next one. If you're anything like my family, it's important to be a little casually late, right? We don't show up to anything on time because who does that? You know, I'm telling you, there's something about having the margin of maybe having 20 minutes in between your meetings so that you can slow down and be present for just a moment. You can take a breath. You can breathe. You're not so stressed out. If you would slow down, slow down the pace of your life that's going at warp speed, and you breathe for just a moment, I think that you would begin to notice things that are going on around you that you're just too busy to notice at times because you got to get to the next thing, which is number two. Enjoy the little things and take inventory of them. So as you're slowing down, do you know how to cultivate beauty in your heart? You slow down, and you don't take for granted the little things, like the breath that you're breathing. Have you ever just done that? Have you ever sat for a second and said, thank you, like, God, I have another breath in my lungs. So you know what happened if you didn't? Realize, realize what's right in front of you. Cultivate an attitude of gratitude that every single thing that you have is a gift to be stewarded. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to realize the simple things in life, like hugging your kids is such a beautiful thing because one day they ain't going to want to hug you all much. Enjoy, enjoy good steak. Y'all, sometimes when I cook that big old fat piece of red meat and cut into it, it's a blessing from the Lord. Have a good night's sleep, Right? Last night, it was 42 degrees outside, and imagine being outside with no heat and no air in your house and having to sleep in that. You take for granted, and I'm telling you, if you would just slow down, take inventory of the blessings you have, you'll become a thankful person, and you'll begin to steward those things, which leads to number three, pay attention. Here's what I mean. Pay attention. These guys were going to the temple, and they missed the guy right in front of them because they're not paying attention. Do you pay attention in conversations? Do you ask good questions? I don't know about you, but most of the people I have conversations with, they're asking a question simply to get past me to talk about themselves. What if you slowed down and you asked really good questions, intentional questions, like ask people what the Lord is teaching them. Y'all, you think that's an awkward question, but let me just tell you, when I ask that question, people are ready to talk about it, and nobody ever asked them that. Ask them what the good things that are happening in their lives lately. Ask them how, when they experience joy in this world. Ask them, what do you do for fun? If you'll slow down and you'll pay attention, people will reveal to you what's going on in their lives. Here's another one. Next time you drive home, don't park in the garage. What if you parked outside the garage, intentionally made yourself go in the front door and said hi to your neighbors? Just for a second, I love this. The Willises used to do cookouts in their front yard on purpose. They didn't grill in the backyard because they wanted people to notice. 
Yo, we have to recapture the time and the margin to recognize what's right in front of us because if we do, if we'll pay attention, pay attention to the kids who show up at the baseball field and their parents are never there. Pay attention to the shopping carts as you go through Publix or Costco and you'll begin to notice what people put in them and you'll see, you'll see what they actually have. Slow down and pay attention to the people that are passing right by you. You remember what James said, pure religionist? Listen to what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is literally saying that pure religion is helping the most vulnerable, and I'm telling you, the most vulnerable live here in Alpharetta. They just aren't that obvious. They are in this room, if you'd ask them, the miscarriages that are happening, they're in this room. The loss of a parent, the abandonment of a spouse. Like God might be waiting on you to unleash a miracle in this room if you would just be present enough to ask people what's going on. Verse two. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried. Remember who wrote the book of Acts? Anybody know? Shout it out, this is participation. Luke. Luke, this is important because Luke's going to draw back to a previous story, a man being carried, whom they had laid at the gate of the temple that was called the beautiful gate to ask for alms of those who were entering. Details. In Luke's gospel, who was the last person that was carried lame? Anybody remember? They opened up the roof and they brought him in. This would have brought back visuals to their mind. The very first miracle of the church should be pointing back to that. See, what, what you have to understand is this. If you go back to that story, whose faith, whose faith brought that guy to faith? Not the lame man's, just like this guy. It wasn't. It was the people around him who carried him up. Sometimes, sometimes what you have to understand is that God used you to enact somebody else's faith. Sometimes God wants to use you to change other people's lives. Like, don't forget that the gospel is the greatest gift on the planet for you, but it's also the greatest gift on the planet for God to use through you to the people around you. This is what's beautiful about this story. The Christian life is about picking up people that can't pick up themselves and bringing them to Jesus so that they can experience Jesus too. I'm convinced. I'm convinced in a world where 44 million people in America are not going back to church, I'm convinced in a world that is falling apart and crumbling around us, what they need more than anybody is people like you who love Jesus and our sure foundation to pick them up and bring them back to their joy. So Peter, verse 4 Peter, I'm sorry, verse 3, listen to what he says. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. You know, a couple years ago, I was traveling through Frankfurt, Germany, and um, I saw this beautiful Catholic church in downtown Frankfurt. And it's probably 9 o'clock at night, and I walk up to the steps, and there's a couple homeless people sitting on the steps begging for money, and right behind them was a sign written in three different languages that said, no visitors allowed in this church. I feel like that's what this man would have experienced. As every Pharisee, every Jew was walking by him on their way to worship, he's sitting right there looking for his next meal. And people are walking over him and beyond him to get to God. You know, I think that this might be the most devastating picture of everything that the church should never be, ever. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and he said, look at us. Don't move past that. Vulnerable and hurting people in this world are invisible people. Nobody looks at them. 
It's like whenever I'm watching a football game and the SPCA commercial comes on and cue Sarah McLaughlin and I'm changing the channel as quickly as I can and my wife's like, are you crying? I'm like, no, I got something in my eye. Don't nobody want to see that because it gets at us, right? And it's easier just to look away, but Peter doesn't do that. Peter says, look at me, look at me. You know why he does that? Go back. You know why he does that? Peter, story goes like this. Peter and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm rages and, and they're scared to death and they see Jesus walking by and, and Jesus says to him, come to me. And Peter begins to walk out to him on the water and then he begins to sink. And do you remember what it says? If you remember, if you're a Bible person, you remember this, Jesus looks down at him and the whole point of the story is not that Peter failed, but that even in Peter's failure, Jesus never stops looking at him. Check it out, Peter had experienced it in his deepest, darkest shame whenever the whole world had rejected him in that very moment, whenever he felt the heaviness of that, Jesus never stopped looking at him. So on their way to the temple, he says, I see you. That's the point. When the world doesn't see you, Jesus does, and the church is supposed to too. The church is supposed to be the place where it doesn't matter what you've done. Because listen, all of us, it's okay not to be okay because all of us in here have experienced that deep darkness. And I'm telling you, if you're looking for the perfect church, keep looking. And if you're looking for a church full of hypocrites, you're welcome. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm part of that. All of us are, if we're honest. So we are not pious at all. But listen to what Peter says, I see you. It's the most powerful statement in the world. He looks right at you and he says, I see you. I'm not going to look beyond you. I'm not going to look over you. I see you. Imagine what it would look like if that's the type of life that you lived. Hey, I'm going to empathize with you. By the way, proximity breeds empathy, so get close enough to see people and say to them, I see you. Here's what happens. When you do that, people experience not just paralyzing shame, they experience great grace. And when they experience great grace, God begins to heal their souls. At this very moment... At this very moment, in this very powerful statement, he begins to receive grace. So what does he do? Verse 5, he fixes his attention on them. I love this, expecting to receive something from them. That's an important statement. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Notice that. The dude's looking at them thinking he's about to get a free meal. And Peter's like, bro, I ain't got nothing to give you that you're looking for, but I got something better. I've got something better. Get up and walk. I love this because the very next verse, again, put back in your mind, when Peter was sinking into the Sea of Galilee, what did Jesus do? He reached down, he grabbed his hand, and he lifted him up. Notice what Peter does with this guy. In the very next verse, he reaches down, and he tells him to rise up and walk. I think there's something here for us. It is impossible for you to experience the miracle of the gospel and not be a conduit of the gospel. Y'all, it'd be like this. It'd be like, imagine that you had the cure of cancer, and we've talked about this before. Everybody uses this example, and you didn't do anything with it. How ridiculous would that be? And yet, imagine having the greatest cure on the planet. You have access to the gospel as the world around you is crumbling in fear and chaos. You can give people a sure foundation in Jesus, and it's ridiculous to think that you would have it, you would experience it, and do nothing with it. I love that Peter is passing on the same 
exact experience that he had with Jesus himself. Y'all, there's two observations in verses six and seven that I think are worth noting. Here's the first one. When Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I give you, I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Money isn't nearly as powerful as Jesus. That's what he's saying. Here's the principle. Don't look to money to give you what only Jesus can offer. Money might be able to fix your temporary problems, but it can't fix your eternal problems. Money might be able to make your life easier, but it doesn't give you a purpose to live for. It might be able to buy this guy a lot of things, but it could not heal his soul, much less his legs. Here's the second principle. It comes from verse 7. He says, he looked at him, he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up. And immediately he came to his feet, and his ankles were made strong. Notice this because I think it always gets overlooked. Notice the amount of faith it would have taken for Peter, not for this guy. Peter had just told this guy that his legs were healed, and then he lifts him up. That is faith. I, I think that that observation in a public setting with people watching, this would have taken a ton of faith. Y'all, this guy wasn't looking for healing. He was looking for a handout. And Peter exercised his faith and gave him what he really needed. You see, I think for many of us, that's the point. For many of us, the people around us don't really understand what they need. Matter of fact, you might not understand what you need, and God wants to give you not what you pray for, but what you really need. I told you this before. The great theologian Garth Brooks said it this way. I thank God for unanswered prayers. Could you imagine if God gave you everything you ever asked for? God doesn't give you what you ask for. He gives you what you ultimately want if you knew what you needed to ask for. C.S. Lewis said it like this. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children, we who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God wants to give you so much more than the things that you tend to settle for. I want you to notice that the exercise man, he exercised faith too. He, he exercised faith, but the healing happened when both of them together trusted in Jesus. And I think that's how it still works today. Here's my question for you. If you're a believer in this room, do you believe that Jesus can still heal? Do you believe that he can still do a great work? I want to give you four observations from this passage that I tell you a lot about God. Here, here's number one. God is powerful to heal. It's that simple. See, some of you are starting with the assumption that miracles can't happen today because some scientist somewhere told you that they can't, that they break the natural laws of the world and that that's not how it works. Don't believe them. Don't believe them because it's not true. God still works miracles today. God does miracles all the time. And maybe the reason that you don't see them is because you believe the stuff that people have told you. By the way, the next time a scientist tells you that miracles don't happen because it's supernatural, let me just tell you, here's what you should tell them. Miracles don't suspend the supernatural. They go back to the natural. Okay? That's the point. The natural order was suspended by sin, and one day God is going to make it all come back again. I love one theologian said it this way. Jesus' healings are the only natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus can heal, he still does heal, and he wants to heal today. The question is, is are you ready to receive it? Which leads to the second one. This miracle, like all miracles, points to the restoration of all things. See, the miracle itself is not the point. Notice that he gets up, 
He walks and he leaps with joy. Look at verse 8. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, all the people that walked right past him, by the way. And they recognized him as the one, how did they recognize him? Because they walked right past him. They recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. You know, any first century Jew would have picked up on the fact that this is a direct quotation from Isaiah 35. But before I look at that, here's what I want you to notice. Two times, two times, it says that the guy gets up and praises God. See, oftentimes what we don't want is we don't want God. We want the gifts that God gives us. But the reality is, is you got to point to the great miracle worker, Like my kids, they don't really thank me for the things that we give them. They just assume that we should get them. But this guy twice doesn't forget that while God gave him physical healing, the greatest gift of all was the restoration that was to come of all things. Look at verse 35. I'm sorry, look at Isaiah 35. Here's the direct quotation. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Isaiah 35 is pointing to the time when God is going to restore all things. And then you see the very first miracle of the church. He stands up and he leaps and shouts with joy. Y'all, it's a picture of what God is going to do. You see, sin brought disorder into this world, but the gospel is going to bring order out of the chaos. Everything that has been corrupted, everything has been corrupted in the fall, Jesus is going to restore, and he's going to take down all the brokenness, and one day he is going to heal the deepest wounds of our lives, and you will stand up, and you will leap with joy. Miracles are pointing to something greater. That's the point. They're pointing to what's going to come. You know, God didn't create the world with blindness and and sin and death. He didn't create it that way. And one day he's going to fix it because he's not okay with it. The, the person who helped me understand this more than just about anybody was a lady named Joni Erickson Tata. Joni Erickson Tata, she got into a diving accident when she was a teenager and she broke her neck and she's a quadriplegic now. She, here's what she says. In the deepest, darkest moments of my life, I thought, God, did you create the evil or did Satan? Because it seems like you're both pretty mean. And then she wrote, 37 years later, God has satisfied me so much more than I could have ever imagined with all the intimacy of his presence, and I wouldn't take walking for anything over that. Y'all, that's how I found God. In my deepest, darkest moments, I found him most satisfying. Whenever the, the illusion of control is stripped away and my wife is sitting in the hospital room and we don't know if our son is going to survive or not, That is when I leaned into prayer more than any other time in my life, and God satisfied my soul in those moments. When he gives me everything I've ever wanted, guess what I don't think about? Him. Telling you, nobody wants to talk about this, but sometimes suffering is God's greatest gift to draw you back to him. Maybe maybe you feel that. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you need to hear me say this. God is faithful. I'm telling you, he's met me and he will meet you right where you are whenever you need him most if you'll let him. And let me just say this. God hates suffering. 
Like sometimes the, those great theodicies, where we ask God, why does evil come into the world? Let me just tell you, God's answer to that is the cross. He hates suffering. He hated it so much that he let his one and only son come to this earth, put on flesh, live your perfect life, die your death in your place, raised from the dead so that he can fix it. And one day, Revelation 21 says that he will wipe away every tear from your eye and death will be no more. He will restore things back to the way that it was always supposed to be. Here's the point. One day, one day it's all going all gonna to be okay. But in the meantime, you and I are supposed to be conduits of his blessing, building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be alleviating the suffering of this world. That means that we should care for the poor and those who are hurting. We should slow down, take a breath, take inventory, look at the people around us. We should pray for the people that are hurting. We should buy meals for those who are sick in our church. Pay attention. You know what I do? Uh, maybe you've seen this. I survey our Instagram every single day because what, what ends up happening is we put our lives out there on display. And when we do, and your child is sick, or you're not feeling well, I try to call you and give you a meal. And like, you should do the same thing for one another because we care about one another. But it takes intentionality to do that. Simply go and listen to people who are hurting. Fight for the justices that, that, and get rid of the systematic injustices in this world and care about those things. I'm telling you, God is an enemy of suffering and you should be too. He has positioned us in such a way that we can actually fix the things that are going on right in front of us. See, the miracle is pointing to the restoration of all things, and we are supposed to get people there. Here's number three. The miracle points to the greater miracle. Again, verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. Can I tell you that there's nothing worse than taking care of somebody's physical healing without their spiritual healing if you have the ability to do both. I, I just want to put it out there. God doesn't really care if your dislocated leg gets fixed if your dislocated soul does not. You can be the most philanthropic person on the planet, go build the best wells in the world, have the greatest NGO in the world. You can be the next Bill Gates, and yet, and yet, if you have the gospel and you don't give it away, I think you missed the point. And let me just tell you, all those are great things. We should do those things, but we should also be about telling people about the greater miracle that is Jesus. It wasn't, I, I, I would imagine, I mean, I'm speculating here, but I bet you Peter invited that guy over for dinner afterwards. I bet you they had a meal together because that's what the Christian community tends to do. But what he did is he didn't pass over the greater miracle. In that moment, in two times, two times, the Bible says this guy got up and he praised God. See, the greater miracle wasn't his legs, but his heart. It was his soul. And I believe that if you would just take one step towards Jesus, he would do the same exact thing in your life too. Here, here's what I want you to see. All of us, all of us have a deeper brokenness. Blaise Pascal called it this God-sized hole in our hearts that can only be fit with the gospel. Peter recognized that. And so Peter didn't just recognize giving him a meal, but he wanted to give him Jesus. See, you might not. You might not have a broken leg, but let me just tell you, if you're not with Jesus, your soul is disconnected. And what you need more than anything, like Paul said, is you need, you need life or else you're just going to be dead. And Jesus is offering you the greatest miracle ever. You know the story, um, it comes out of John chapter 8, and I know that's controversial. You can go read about that somewhere else, but the woman caught in adultery, it's kind of a crazy story if you think about it. So this woman, she's caught in the very act of adultery, okay? 
and she's drug in before Jesus in her very act, naked and ashamed. By the way, that's what all of sin does, if you didn't know that. Genesis chapter 2 says the same, or 3 says the same thing, right? They were naked and ashamed, and she's dropped before Jesus, and he says something to everybody around. He says, you who are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, they began to leave. And until it was just her and Jesus standing face to face. You know what's fascinating, though? Jesus was without sin, which means that he had every right to throw a stone at her. But he doesn't. He makes one of the most profound statements, and it's audacious, and it's so unique. Look at what he says in John 8. There it is. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Fascinating, she calls him Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You know why that's important? Don't miss the order. Every religion on the planet would tell you, sin no more, and I'll forgive you. Matter of fact, that's what I would have done. What do you mean? You got caught in adultery, like in the very act of it. Sin no more and you'll be forgiven. That's not what Jesus says. The order is so important. Jesus says, I forgive you. Forgive you, now go and sin no more. See, the power to change is in the miracle of forgiveness, not in the obedience of cleaning up your act. That's actually what allowed her to clean up her act is that she was deeply forgiven. Here's a lesson for you. You can either expose your sins and Jesus will cover your shame or you can cover your sins and he will expose your shame. But at the end of the day, religion says go and be better and God will forgive you and the gospel says God forgives you just as you are in your paralyzed state and all of your shame. Now go and live differently. It's exactly what Peter said. Hey, I might not have money, but I've got something greater. I've got the gospel. You know, if there's one thing I'm learning, it's this, that the secret to living a life of abundance is not in the abundance of stuff. It's in the freedom of forgiveness. It's in this unshakable freedom that ultimately everything is going to be okay. That one day Jesus is going to fix this mess and he is going to do the unthinkable. He is going to put death to death and I will live for all of eternity. And no matter what I experience in this world, let me just tell you, if you're a Christ follower, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. Listen to me, or better yet, listen to Tim Keller because he always says it better. That's what he says. As bad as your suffering is, suffering is not your primary problem, sin is. What you need more than immediate healing is salvation. You need Jesus. That's what this man needed. I'm telling you, if he gives you everything your heart desired and you don't have him, listen to me, you are going to get to the end of your life and you're going to be unsatisfied. I've told you this before. I've never met a man who got on his deathbed and said, man, I wish I'd have spent more, more time at my job making money and being successful. No, what I hear often is, I spent my entire life climbing the corporate ladder only to find out that it was leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. And I wish that I would have cared less about that stuff and cared more about what Jesus was doing in the world. Last one, number four. 
miracles aren't about the superhero doing the miracles, they're about Jesus. Did you notice that Peter never pointed to himself? He points to Jesus because, because ultimately the greatest miracle in every miracle is really about him. It's really about Jesus. You see, the lame man was going to die. I, I want to break it to you. One day he's going to get his fix. He's going to get his um, feet fixed and he's going to end up dying just like you and I. And Jesus cared more about the greater miracle, the gospel. He didn't want him to miss that. The greatest miracle of all, guys, is that God himself, who created everything, who spoke the world, who breathed life into you, put on flesh, literally incarnated. Carne asada, you know, meat, he put on flesh. That's the picture. He incarnated himself. He lived on this earth without sin. Why? So he could substitute himself for you. See, here's the picture. The only way that you could actually stand before God is if you either paid your punishment or you were sinless. Neither one of those were true. So God himself inserted himself so that he could be your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it that way. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that whenever Jesus lived your perfect life in your place, he could die and he could stand before God and he could say, not that one. I died for that one. You've already punished David because you punished me. Now he's my son. And he would say, not because of you, but because of me. I love the way one guy said it, the thief on the cross, he stands before heaven and Peter's like, how did you get here? Like literally 30 seconds ago, you were, you were stealing stuff. How in the world did you get here? And he's like, I don't know. I was asking myself the same question. He's like, all I can tell you is the man on the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> same thing's true for your life. The only answer that you're ever gonna give before Jesus is this. I'm here not because of anything I ever did, but because of what you did. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let me just say this. In today's world, the people who do the miracles tend to take the credit for the miracles. I think that what you should see here is everybody in the Bible who does a miracle ends up paying a ton of punishment for it. Peter goes to jail. Jesus was killed. Paul goes to prison. Listen, when they did miracles, they didn't become strong. They became weak. Pay attention and watch out for the guy who takes all the credit away from Jesus. See, the skeptical, be, I'm sorry, be skeptical of those people. But let me tell you this. The sacrifices of his people in this world to make the gospel beautiful is the greatest miracle outside of Jesus this world has ever seen. When you and I are willing to suffer great loss like Peter and Paul and Jesus so that other people's lives get better, what you end up doing is you pointing to a better kingdom and God does something crazy and beautiful because that right there, sacrificial kindness, is the greatest miracle on the planet outside of Jesus. Peter says it like this. The same guy that did this miracle. Listen to what he says. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, that's the gospel, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, watch, watch, watch. If you get this, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, here's what he's saying, heaven is your home. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, so countercultural, which wage war against your soul. Hear me whenever I say this. The passions of your flesh 
are going to war against your eternity. Keep your conduct among the unbelievers, that's Gentiles, honorable. So that when, and this is here's what he's saying, they're going to, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, it's going to happen. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Beloved, if you get the gospel, if you've received the greatest miracle of all, how could you not? What makes people live like this? It's that they've experienced the goodness of God. They've experienced the gospel. So slow down. Don't be so busy that you have to move on to the next thing. Slow down. Take a breath. See, the air you breathe is a gift. The success you have is a gift. The health you embody is a gift. And the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have is a gift. The first miracle in the church was pointing to the restoration of all things. Where one day, God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. And in the meantime, you are the gift to a lost world that needs to meet Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what it would look like if everybody you knew around you lived like Peter just said? Let me, let me, let me change it. Can you imagine if you lived like Peter just said? You sacrifice so that people can know Jesus you abstained from certain things. You believed that your identity is that you are royal. You're chosen. You're precious. You're adopted into his family. You have a new name. That one day, when all this mess is gone, you're going to experience life everlasting with King Jesus. I need you to embrace that. To build a margin into your life to get that, to receive that if you never have. And watch. And slow down. And breathe. It's going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. Father, what beauty there is in Acts chapter 3. The reality is, is you do have silver and gold and you have so much more and you want to give it all to us like a good father. God, I just believe that there are too many of us in this room right now that are not living out the, the identity that you've called us to. Maybe we've prayed a prayer. Maybe, maybe we walk with you, but we're still like in that prison cell of our own identity and yet the door is wide open that you have so much freedom that you want to give us and joy that you want to give us. And you want to use us. God, I pray that you would use us to change this world and to change our world and to change the world across the street, to change our city and to bring you hope. I bring this world hope and glory in your name. King Jesus, thank you for the greatest miracle. I pray that you would do all the miracles in our lives and do them through us too, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.